Well, hey everyone, I'm Alex, and I'm joined this month by Aaliyah for the next episode of the Futures of Education podcast. Today we're focused on education from the future, so we're interested in how our assumptions about the future might be influencing our vision for education. And today we're delighted to have Dominic Register joining us. Dominic is a director of the Centre for Education Transformation at Salzburg Global Seminar, where he's responsible for designing, developing and implementing programmes on the future for education. Welcome, Dominic. Thanks, Leah. Hi, Alex. Happy to be with you both. Welcome. Okay, so let's get into our first question. So to kick off the conversation, what sort of assumed futures have you come across on it? I know it's quite a broad question to get us going. I think there it feels like there are two trends within this. There's the sort of optimistic, slightly techno utopia futures where um, you know education in particular will be you know but, but wider life and society will be very very technologically enabled. Um, and better for that. So that sort of connection back to some of the, the kind of Keynesian thinking about economic future and that technology will mean people only have to work two or three days a week and things like that. Um, and then the other end of the spectrum that we hear, hear a lot is the much more sort of dystopian future where it will be much more you know, fractured societies and increasing conflict and climate crisis not being addressed. Um, and... There, there isn't that much thinking, I think, around the sort of middle ground as to where there might be incremental improvement, uh, but it won't be catastrophic. On the, on the dystopian side, do you think the, the frequency with which crises are referenced or described as being existential feels like it's increasing? Um, there's certainly more conflict um, in Europe and closer to, to where we're all speaking from than there has been in a long while. Um, and these big climate you know, the big climate summits like COP, did it really make the progress that was needed? I think there's more anxiety around that that kind of climate, the, the, the way in which the climate crisis will not be addressed um, rapidly enough for it not to have a significant impact on quality of life for future generations. Um, and, you know, to, to, yeah, I think that there's definitely, it feels like there's space for more of a middle ground than futures thinking where things can get better, but it won't be quite the sort of techno-utopia um, it will be recognisably like our lives or our world, um, but hopefully a little bit better, a little bit more inclusive, a little bit more equitable, things like that. Cool. Thanks, Dominic. Just picking up on the, the sort of two two themes there that you spoke about, just picking up on the first one, sort of techno-utopia, uh, and whether or not that sort of speaks to that sort of fourth industrial revolution uh, sort of narrative uh, as well. What opportunities and challenges does the techno-utopia narrative uh, provide for education, do you think? I think um, on the opportunities side, there, there is the, you know, the way in which the, the process of schooling and learning may well change, you know, c- could change quite radically. So more learning from home, for example, people being able to access content um, as and when is convenient um, for them. At the more extreme end of things, there's a sort of ideas around, you know, we can have a chip implanted um, that will deliver curriculum content in an age-appropriate and timed manner, um, which is interesting and quite yeah. sort of feels quite sci-fi and far removed yeah. at the moment. Um, I think the, the challenges around it are you know, fairly obvious around 
kind of risk and equity of access and the way in which digital divides get exacerbated. You know, the, some one of the lessons, one of the many lessons from the, the pandemic and the school closures and the school shutdown was how, you know, even in richer countries, OECD countries or whatever, there is not an even distribution of access to technology and to virtual learning platforms and students with devices at home. So the sort of digital divide was exacerbated, I think, during the during the COVID pandemic, particularly along, you know, within countries along socioeconomic lines, but then also between countries um, who had the infrastructure in place and, and those who didn't. And the, the worry is, you know, as we rush into doing more of this or bringing more and more technology into education, does it further exacerbate that divide? Mm. Yeah, fascinating. I, yeah, I really agree with your point around there being a need for a middle ground because I feel like depending on what spaces you find yourself in, you're either surrounded by people that are, yeah, education for the future is, is looking great, we need to stay optimistic, and then you have another group of people that are like essentially scaring you. Um, and particularly as a student, I feel like I'm in spaces more like that, particularly with adults, surprisingly, that are like rightfully so pointing out all the dangers and the, the, the threats that are that we can anticipate. How do you imagine that students and teachers and people in education can actually stay liberated um, for that sort of anticipated future? I think there's, there's some really really important work done around um, the, what I've read as being described as the moral responsibility towards hope. So particularly if you're in an intergenerational context and you've got people of sort of mine and Alex's age, and if we're only talking about a doom and gloom and the future is you know, dystopian or worse or whatever, that, that's not helping solve the problem. It's not addressing things. So there needs to be you know, there is almost a moral responsibility when thinking about the future to to try and think about it through a hopeful framing, I think, because that will, um, you know, without being naive or blind to risks or danger, but that will hopefully unlock more positive solutions for the future. Um, so I think, in, you know, as, as one strategy for, for sort of that liberation work, yeah, I would definitely counsel towards leaning more towards hope and positivity but then thinking about how do you how do you actually rationalize or justify mm. that where does that hope come from does that come through the positive actions that we can all take on a daily basis to help make that future better than it might otherwise be yeah i feel like that's really constructive because it's so easy to just say be optimistic you know stay positive but what what does that actually like mean in actuality um yeah no thank you for that and there's always um I, I read somewhere recently there's um I think he's a Brazilian philosopher called Roberto Unger, um, who has written about whether whether it is hope that comes from action, or whether it's hope that leads to action, or action that leads to hope. Um, and in the, the there was another podcast I heard about it, um, that sort of emphasis very much on its action that leads to hope. And so the more that we can do, and that sort of aggregation of individual actions that can make for a better future will also give us more causes to be hopeful and optimistic about it. Totally. Yeah, really cool. I, I forget who has, uh, who's talked about this from a research perspective, but there was a, a term I came across the other day of, of educated hope. And um, I, I wonder, I suppose that, that's, that's, that's hope 
alongside uh, a steer towards uh, actionable things that we can do to, you know, to actually enable young people or older people to to feel as though there's something they can do. They can actually physically take ownership over this situation uh, and and have that sort of educated, responsible hope. Are there areas within education where we think we can build more educated hope? Are there, are there particular things that stand out for us where perhaps the education around the hope is lacking? I think looking back at lessons from the recent past and some of the big trends that have helped catalyze the global education transformation mm. work which is taking place. And I think there are really useful insights from that. So it it feels, and you know, this was referenced at the Transforming Education Summit in in New York in, in 2022. Um, you know, the, the, the sort of some of the main drivers for this were yet yes, there was the experience of the pandemic and you know the, the way in which that highlighted inequalities between and within um, different countries or different societies and communities. But but it wasn't in isolation. It was also coming on the back of several years of um, Black Lives Matters campaigning and that sort of struggle for greater equity and racial justice and addressing historic examples of injustice. It came alongside the Me Too movement, trying to achieve something um, analogous in many ways around gender equity or gender justice. And it came at a time when the, the climate crisis was beginning to manifest much more visibly an impact on people's lives across a wider geographic um, range of countries than it had previously. And so I think, you know, all of these different things, we're seeing just how wrong education systems are in so many places and how they have in many, many ways contributed to a lot of the problems that societies and countries are now trying to grapple with and need to grapple with urgently. And so this this global process of transformation is a really powerful response to that. And what I really hope, and a lot of the work that we're trying to support or contribute to from Salzburg is around you know, thinking about the role that education plays in building more inclusive futures, the role that education plays in helping more, um, develop more climate literate, climate just societies and um, citizens understanding impact of their individual actions and behavior. Um, yeah, so I think there are, there are some you know, lessons from, from the recent past that can really help shape how education needs to evolve in order to contribute to the sort of skills that we hope citizens um, in the near future will have to build the kind of societies that will much better serve them and the planet as a whole. Yeah. Thanks, Dominic. Thank you. I mean, even just some of the points that you mentioned around access links directly onto um, the conversation around accessibility, accessibility for digital education. And so I wondered, what do you think the implications are of the digital era on the future for education? Um, who may be left behind? Who stands to gain from this transformation? I think, yeah, there's there's loads of research on it, but I, I think there is still more of the conversation that needs to happen in order to really crack down on how we can move forward in that world because yeah we can't take for granted that technology is is transforming and it is evolving and it is definitely going to be something that's coming our way in education um so there's there's the risks that we're already cognizant of and the impact that things like social media have 
on mental health and you know the way in which that that can come very easily into the classroom and impact on how students feel about that themselves or their learning environment and instances of bullying and everything else. So sort of being cognizant to the risks that currently exist. There's all the online safety discourse as well, which is, you know, is really important and quite, you know, I think increasingly widely understood. Um, then there's probably a category of risk that haven't yet come through that we're not yet aware of. This is slightly sort of Donald Rumsfeld territory, isn't it, of known unknowns and known knowns and unknown unknowns. But um the, it feels, if you look at the, the, de, the debate around mobile phones or smartphones in classrooms at the moment, it's really interesting how, you know, the, it feels like since the start of this year, there have been a number of education systems that have announced there will be no smartphones in the classroom, um, which is, you know, is interesting and surprising in some ways that they're seen as a distraction. And I, I don't know, Alex, in your school, do you have a smartphone policy? Are students allowed to access them or... Yeah, they, they, they have them on them, on, on their person. But, um, yeah, we're just trying to encourage, actually, please don't sort of get them out and use them around school. So between 8.30 and 6 o'clock, that's really not in encouraged at all because we're yeah, wanting a little bit more human connection or connection with the environment and things. So, yeah, we've tried to strike a little bit of a balance there. But it's tricky, isn't it? But that, that feels really wise, you know, in terms of the role, if one of the roles of education, of schooling, is to help prepare people for work in the future mm. it would be rare in, you know to find a job particularly a sort of knowledge economy type job where you weren't actively encouraged to use your phone to do to yeah. do research and make connections and understand the topic so it feels you know the, the blanket ban and not not totally convinced by your soul then you feel there needs to be a way of working with the technology in a way which is helpful and constructive what about at um, university, Alia? Do you, you yeah, I mean, at university, yeah, we, we are encouraged to like it is completely different to school. Like it's just something that I guess with there is just that level of trust and responsibility over what we're doing. But I think definitely in school, I acknowledge that social media, for instance, was something that like was very tricky to manage and very tricky to to sort of mitigate some of the risks and that you know young people can put themselves at when they're using it particularly in school so I think it was just a lot easier for schools to sort of say yeah like no phones in order to stop thousands of young people sort of exposing themselves to the dangers that come when you do yeah. use social media in terms of technology as a whole itself I don't think that it in itself is the danger I don't think that's the problem um we had like iPads and like other forms of technology that we that were the schools that we could use and that we were actively encouraged to use um so I, I definitely think it's probably about not saying that the use of technology is bad but actually it's how we use it and I think as long as schools are um making young people aware of the fact that it's the way you use it that's the most dangerous then there can be that honest conversation because I think if young people just hear can't use your phone it's not good then they're like what does that even mean yeah. it, that doesn't make sense to them um so yeah educating young people on the actual risks that are associated to what technology brings I'd say I think there's there's some really interesting work going on looking at um you know if you, if you start from the assumption that that education and the, the process of learning is sort of is a deeply relational or social process, um, and so there's you know great research around the importance of teacher-student 
relationships, for example. So where technology is being used to free up more teacher time for those human you know, teacher to student interactions and that kind of contact and support, then that, that's brilliant. Um, and there's some fantastic um, stuff already out there that different education providers have done. There's some really interesting work being done by different robotics and AI organizations. I had the chance to speak with people at the Honda Research Institute um, about a robotics project they have called Haru, um, who is a sort of um, cl virtual classroom assistant working with teachers, but very much there to sort of take some of the, um, the, the work of teaching that can be automated to take that off the teacher's hands so that the teacher has more time for supporting individual students. And that, that stuff is brilliant and exciting. Mm. Yeah, no, very much so. I, I was interested, Dominic, with, with your, your comment a, a little while ago about mobile phones. And it made me think about uh, actually sort of fear of the unknown. And I think a lot of parents and teachers and perhaps young people as well, uh, you know, these sort of mobile phone policies or these attitudes towards technology come about through fear of the unknown and wow this world is so complex it's it's really scary let's introduce this rule and this rule and this rule to try and get certainty in that complexity i wonder as a question to to open up a conversation here, like, I, I wonder what role fear plays in um trying to to, or the removal of fear plays in, in trying to discover new futures or new ways of doing things and what we are potentially afraid of in today's society that if we were perhaps less so it might open up new avenues for educational exploration I, I imagine a, a lot that sort of combination of, of fear and also lack of imagination or fear, you know, fa failure of imagination about the future um, and not, not understanding it or no, the, there is that, that idea of you know one of the core purposes of of schooling and of education is that that sort of transfer of a body of received knowledge that make up the kind of um, the idea of the country or the nation comes from one generation to the next, and you know it's important that the people who are in leadership positions now this did this approach did really well for them, so it will do really well for the next generation, and we mustn't. Um, you know, tinker with that or play around with it. And um, the, the pandemic and the, the kind of response from the education sector and the creativity and innovation that came through, you know, in those couple of years shows that this, this doesn't have to be the case at all. I think there are lots of different ways of, um, of delivering content. And the things that are most important or most, um, the things that students and that parents saw their their children most missing when they were all at home during the pandemic um, weren't necessarily the, that that sort of corpus of knowledge. It was, you know, there was a lot more about the social and the emotional connection, the opportunity that being in a classroom provides for social and emotional development, for relationship development and things like that, um, which aren't forefronted in, in the majority of education systems, but are really, really important. And, you know, the, the, that sort of, you know, the, I forget the, the exact framing of it, but the you know the fact that the majority of jobs that people in school today will go on to do don't yet exist, that kind of framing. So a lot of what people are learning in school isn't going to be directly applicable um, to what they go on to do later in life. But pro-social skills or you know the, the love of learning or the commitment to lifelong learning, emotional regulation, emotional intelligence, all of those things which aren't tech dependent in any way, shape or form. 
Um, but um, our, you know, I think the importance around them is increasing enormously, and that, that, that's a really good thing. That's a really good cause for optimism um, for the future, I think, a good source of hope. Yeah, thank you. I really liked um, a part of Alex's question that drawed upon um, you potentially as a parent. I think um, a lot of educational leaders can forget their roles in other spaces and their positions in other spaces and the sort of like intersection to what makes you you. Um, so I wonder, I mean, this wasn't a question that we kind of prescribed to you before, but I wonder whether um, you can talk to us about how you might deal with some of the tension that that might bring? Have you ever experienced there being sort of like a conflict of, okay, I'm a, a parent, so I have this hat on, but then I'm also um, an educational spokesperson and leader that also thinks this, like what, I guess there's not always tension, but um, yeah, what opportunities or tension may you experience with that when you're transforming education and thinking about that? that that's a lovely question. Um, so I have a nine-year-old uh, and a four-year-old. Um, my nine-year-old goes to a um, local Montessori school um, here in Salzburg, one of the, the two government-funded Montessori schools. And she, um, and it's brilliant. And it's, you know, I think the, there's so much in the Montessori pedagogical approach, which is aligned with a lot of what we're thinking about. So the, the sort of the relationship between the child and their environment, whether that environment is defined as the classroom or the wider school or the, the town, or the district, um, the sort of application of the, the kind of golden rule that you need to leave things either the same or a little bit better than they were when you found them and how that manifests, you know, in the, the simplest of things, you know, when you take a book off the bookshelf, and I think when you put it back, you've got to put it back just, you know, in the place where you found it um, and the right way around and all sorts of things like that. Um, Montessori, you know, it's been fantastic. You know, so they, you know, it's a primary school, so they don't have phones in the classroom, but there are different research projects where the children can use, you know, be online at home and things like that. So that feels like a good kind of happy age-appropriate uh, balance. My my son is four, so he's um, his engagement with screen is more at the consumption end of things, and sort of. Um, so there aren't there obviously there isn't any tech in, in the kindergarten yet for him. Yeah, I, I feel the. With three three young children myself, Dominic, I feel the uh, the, the opportunities and, and challenges that uh, um, yeah that are presented in that area um, joyful, of course, uh, most of the time. Um, I, it is a great challenge, though, Elia. Like that sort of when we talk, when sort of you know, pontificating about something about education in the future. To just sort of think, if my daughter was listening to me, what would the expression on her face be like now? And would she be like shaking her head in despair and disgust? Yeah. I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm sure not. I'm sure not. I also just, I mean, I, the reason why I asked was because I just feel like I, especially in the intergenerational work, I mean, I'm a student and I'm just a student, but when I'm speaking with people that are, that are adults that do have families, I just wonder how much, um, what they might say, what they might advocate for actually relates back to the sort of experiences that they sort of lead within their own homes. Because these things that we talk about are quite tricky to, to sort of implement and they do come with sacrifices and they do have some costs at, at different points. And so, I, I, yeah, I just, I do question the extent to which um, some of the things that we aspire to, to sort of to have in our own lives or to see yeah. within education actually matches up to your everyday. Um, so, I mean, that's a perfect example of how, you know, you've made a decision for your children that 
is very linked and aligned with some of the things that you advocate for. So, and we were lucky to be in a city where it was possible. Yeah, you know, and that you, you make me think of all the you know the kind of news stories around the children of Silicon Valley mm. tech leaders who have a no screen policy at home and things like that, and that kind of the the, the, the divide between the private and the public. Yeah, yeah, fascinating, isn't it? Thank you, Dominic. You you towards the start of our conversation picked up sort of two two themes two narratives that are perhaps shaping education at the moment the the techno utopia uh that um that, that you, you commented on a little bit further i'm wondering whether i can ask the same question about that second theme which is the dystopian uh sort of theme that the look that the world's in uh you know facing a lot of challenges parts of it in in sort of uber crisis that that's the narrative and let's shape our education around it what what are the opportunities and challenges uh, for educational transformation around that narrative, do we think? I think the, um, some of the work around nature-based education mm. is really interesting in this, in this space. There's, um, beginning on Monday, there's the World Environmental Education Conference in Abu Dhabi. Um, and there's a really interesting range of different speakers talking about different aspects of nature-based education. So that, that idea of you know, the, the earlier children have the opportunity to learn with and within nature, so outdoor learning, but also learning about nature, um, the more they will realise they are a part of nature mm. and that we, you know, the decisions that we make within our individual lives or as societies need to also be really cognisant of the impact that they will have on, on nature and the wider world. Um, sort of paraphrasing things that um, people like Louis Camargo have said much more eloquently and effectively. Lewis leads this amazing organization called OPEPA in Colombia um, and has done some superb work around nature-based education cool. in, and sort of green school grounds and the importance of that. Um, so within that, there's, so th there's that aspect of sort of, you know, learning about and learning with nature and seeing Mother Nature as, as a kind of superb teacher. Um, there's also... I think the really important, and this comes back to some of the intergenerational work that Aaliyah, you were referencing, but you know, the sort of skills for effective activism is another, I think, important part of that, that, that children are very good. I'd say this from first-hand experience as well, you know, and sort of bringing about change in family spaces. And so for children to understand, you know, the, the sort of activist skills or, you know, how to how to, um, to develop a good argument and think about behavioural change and that sort of value shift from generation to generation is really important. Yeah, fantastic. And I, I, just as a, a follow up question, um, between those two themes, the the techno utopia and the sort of dystopian uh, global challenge themes, you talked about this middle ground. And Elia has also talked about inclusive education as well. I suppose what are some other ways um, that that we can we can think about that middle ground? What might that look like? Uh, how can we bring people together to talk about that middle ground to challenge some of the assumptions that we're making about the future and some of the narratives? Uh, are, are there more inclusive ways of doing things? Thinking about. The role of the role education can play in building more inclusive futures. 
is a good entry point into this. So some of that is around what gets taught and, and how it gets taught and who gets to teach it. So um, thinking about um, history curricula, for example, and you know the, the, the number of different narratives that are possible if you're talking about a country's history, but um, how many of them are also sort of developed from a particular worldview point and not, you know, I think about when, when I was at school and I did history through to A-level and then at university, but the, there was very little opportunity for any critical engagement with things like British Empire. Um, it was seen as a sort of you know, big success narrative for, the, for Britain and the world. And this is 25 years ago, and I'm sure the history curriculum has changed since then, but it was, a, it was quite a narrow worldview. And, you know, I was lucky and had amazing history teachers who were um, very keen to encourage different kinds of debate around it. Um, but it didn't feel, thinking back, you know, we, there wasn't nearly enough about uh, the impact of something like empire on different countries rather than the negative impact um, and not nearly enough learning about kind of people who are seen as, as great heroes of resistance or who challenge that in different country contexts that would help you to help change your worldview. So thinking more about, um, you know, how what gets taught and how does what get taught what gets taught contribute to more inclusive futures thinking is one entry point into it, I think. Cool. Aliyah, have you got anything else for Dominic? I know. I just think your, your last point is like so spot on and is something that like, even as a student now, I've just noticed the difference between, you know, like mainstream school and then coming to university, how that level of like, criticality is just completely missed and I remember my school teacher saying yeah really you're going too off the spec now like let's rein it in and I was like what like there's so many other arguments that we could be making here um and it was never sort of allowed um I guess maybe just to finish do you have any last like final inspiring words um for listeners today around how we how we can be hopeful and you know pull on some of that hope that you mentioned for um some of those assumed futures that we that we have I think the not to lose sight of the importance of the aggregation of individual action that we can all contribute to the kind of future that we hope will come to be in lots of different ways and that all of those different actions will have an impact on the people who witness them or the people who are part of them and the people around us and that that is one way I think both of, of sort of nurturing and caring for hope um, but also helping to make it manifest and, and make it realised. Um, so, yes, that I hope. Not, not, not super original and inspiring, but hopefully useful and an idea to keep hold of, even in the, the sort of most challenging of times. Yeah. For sure. Fantastic. I think we can, we can leave it there, team. What a fantastic conversation. Uh, Dominic, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Aliyah, thank you so much for co-hosting. Thank you. For and, oh, yeah, pleasure. And look forward to seeing you, Aaliyah, next next episode of the month. Um, and Dominic, too, for your disruptive idea. But until the next time, thanks, everyone, for listening and tuning in to this episode of the Future of Education podcast. Thanks, everybody. See you Thank soon. You. Thank you.